Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Pakistan is often caricatured and stereotyped as a volatile nuclear country on the precipice of disaster. Such depictions are often especially acerbic when it comes to the issue of women's rights in the country. In an important new book, Interpreting Islam, Modernity and Women's Rights in Pakistan, Anita Weiss, Professor of International Studies at the University of Oregon, provides a much-needed corrective to such sensationalist stereotypes. By exploring how multiple state and non-state actors have engaged the question of gender and women's rights over time and space, Weitz demonstrates ways in which a diversity of voices in Pakistan conduct what she calls everyday ijtihad, thus offering a much more nuanced and informed perspective. In our conversation, we talked about a range of issues, such as the history of the Pakistani state's approach towards defining and engaging women's rights, the role of progressive NGOs like the Orat Foundation, orthodox Islamist voices on this question, and the tariq taliban in Swat. This lucidly written book contains a plethora of useful information and analysis for specialists and non-specialists alike. Here now is my conversation with Professor Anita Weiss. Hello, Anita. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Very good. Uh, thank you so much, Anita, for your time and uh, for agreeing to talk to us about your excellent uh, new book uh, on New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, so we have a tradition of New Books in Islamic Studies. And our first question is always biographical. Uh, we're very interested in the narrative of our authors and how they came to become uh, scholars of Islam and Muslim societies. Uh, so that question to you, uh, could you share with us a bit about how did you become a scholar interested in Islam and Muslim societies? And then how did you come to write uh, this particular book? I will try to keep this brief because I've been working in this field for nearly 40 years. So briefly, I did my doctorate in sociology at UC Berkeley, and I was always interested in development. But my secondary field was always sociology of religion. And when and the reason I was interested in Pakistan as an example for development is is pretty obvious. You know, the Harvard advisory group had gone to Pakistan and 1959, stayed there, I think, four, about three, four years to try to um, transform Pakistan's economy. When that didn't happen under the Kennedy administration, there was a real push to for political transformations also to include previously disenfranchised groups. The bottom line was that Pakistan was going to be the example for Western societies of how to bring about development. And when that didn't happen, things kept trying to be tweaked. So I was very interested in development studies as an undergraduate, went to Berkeley as a graduate student because it had a great sociology department and a great South Asian studies department. Um, Again, sociology of religion was always a very important field for me as well. While I was doing my dissertation field research in Pakistan, I was there from April. I first went to Pakistan as a student on the Berkeley Urdu program um, from January through March 19, um, 1978. 
returned April uh, 1979 through April of 1980 to do my dissertation field research on culture, development, and industrialization. In fact, um, that book resulted in that, I mean, that research resulted in my first book, Culture, Class, and Development in Pakistan, The Emergence of an Industrial Bourgeoisie in Punjab. But of course, I couldn't help what was to observe what was happening in Pakistan at that time, because it was February 2nd, 1979, that Zia al-Haq implemented his Islamization program. So in fact, I mentioned culture, class, and development. It was my first the first of my own books, but the first book that I actually came out with was an edited book in 1986, Islamic Reassertion in Pakistan, the Application of Islamic Laws in a Modern State. So in fact, in doing that, you can see how my, you know, my interest was development, economic growth and transformation, but also the role Islam was playing in it. And I followed this over the years. And it's funny, I mean, now, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not at the end of my career, but approaching it, I guess. Um, but it's funny how you look back that my, the three areas for my PhD orals were sociology of development, sociology of religion, and sociology of South Asia. And in fact, that's what this new book is about. There is one other thing that I've been involved in for many years, and that is writing about women's rights, um, women in development issues, gender and development issues in Pakistan, chronicling the women's movement in Pakistan. I was a member of the National Commission on the Status of Women's Research Advisory Board on, um, under two different heads of NCSW. So... Um, it's really, this book was a coming together of my various interests. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, so let's uh, begin with a, a broad question, uh, which is, uh, could you explain to our listeners the central theme and uh, goal and the main argument of this book? And uh, I found it very interesting uh, in your introduction, uh, you uh, talked about this interesting concept of what you call everyday ijtihad. So ijtihad is a key concept in your book, and you talk about uh, sort of non-textual, everyday ishtihad uh, in, in Pakistan. So uh, could you explain that to us, that concept also as part of this uh, answer? Yes, of course, happy to. First of all, the central theme of the book is, really came out of my many years of experience of conducting field research in Pakistan, whether it was about the challenges of implementing the UN CEDAW convention or or doing research about legal reforms and women's rights, people continuously said to me, and not only in Pakistan, but also in Malaysia and Tunisia, where I've also conducted field research, people have continuously said to me, we, we have to do this because of Islam. We can't do this because of Islam. But what they were talking about were different things. Everybody had their own ideas of what Islam was allowing them to do or prohibiting them to do in terms of understanding women's rights. So this book for me was really an important journey to figure out what is, you know, what are the different narratives, the different views that different groups in Pakistan hold regarding women's rights and what's possible in Islam. And equally importantly, not only how different groups differ from one another, but groups within a larger typology 
such as Orthodox Islamist groups, how they differ from each other as well. And when I was talking about everyday ijtihad, yes, in the in the beginning of the first chapter, I do go into and in, you know um, a discussion of how ijtihad and the issuing of fatwas has been viewed historically. But today in Pakistan, everyday ijtihad goes on, whether it is a religious leader who may or may not have credentials, actually may or may not actually be a religious leader, somebody like Fazula, the head of the, um, who was the head of the SWAT Taliban and is now the head of the Tariqa Taliban Pakistan. I mean, he calls himself Malana Fazula with no credentials whatsoever to be a Malana. But he comes out with, with, I mean, he conducts ijtihad, he comes out with fatwas about things, and in a classical sense, he has no right to do that. But not only that, but groups themselves conduct everyday ijtihad by saying, this is what Islam, this is our interpretation. Ijtihad, of course, means interpretation. But when groups say, this is our interpretation of what Islam says you can do for women, you must do for women, you cannot do for women. So, so the first uh, chapter of your book uh, uh, talks about the Pakistani state and its uh, engagement with the question of uh, women's rights. Uh, so could you give us a brief historical overview of how the Pakistani state over time has sought to define and, and advance uh, women's rights through legal reforms and what kinds of challenges and tensions uh, has it had to negotiate uh, in that process? Each one of your questions is wonderful. <laughs> I could take a long time answering it. So if I'm too brief, um, please do tell me where you'd like me to expand. But in terms of the state, um, you know, leading going back to 1947, it, in fact, laws in Pakistan at the time seemed to be much more empowering towards women than the laws that had been incorporated into India at that time, because there was already a vision that they had to rethink, reformulate the kinds of colonial laws that Britain had imposed to give women back the rights that Islam gives women that British law had in in part taken away, such as the rights of land ownership, um, the rights, per, um, I mean, women, Muslim women have always had the rights of divorce, but a clearer way of defining that. At the outset, especially in the 1950s, I believe it was the goal of the state, especially after Ayub Khan came to power, to transform Pakistan into a modern state. When Ayub Khan was in power, his vision was, I mean, it was under Ayub Khan in 1961 that they passed the Muslim Family Laws Ordinance. The MFLO was was terribly important because it gave women rights in marriage. It gave it gave women a variety of rights that are enshrined in Islam, but that can, you know, with slight, like you could say, everyday ijtihad, with slight tweaking of those rights, so that to ensure that Pakistan could become a modern society. Basically, that marriages had to be registered, and that's, that's what facilitated divorces as well. One of the big problems confronting women in Pakistan is that if they never had a marriage registered, then how could they have a divorce registered? 
So if and then if they didn't have the divorce registered, how could they remarry without being charged with adultery? So these are the types of issues that were addressed in the Muslim Family Laws Ordinance. A man was supposed to secure the written permission of his first wife before he could marry a second wife and a variety of other issues like that. But I must say that from the outset, um, from the time when Ayub Khan introduced, when his government introduced the MFLO, there was a great deal of opposition from what we could call Orthodox Islamist groups, especially led by the Jamaat Islam. Because indeed, what the, what the law was that the government of Pakistan wanted to enforce was not the most common interpretation that most people ascribe to um, historically under Hanafi Islam. I mean, it still was Hanafi. I mean, it certainly was not Hanbali, which, you know, which is the, the school of law that exists in Saudi Arabia and other parts of the Arabian Peninsula, which is much more conservative and closed, does not accept Ijma and Qiyas as valid sources of law. But instead, what the Muslim Family Ordinance, Muslim Family Laws Ordinance was trying to do was, was interpret understandings of Islamic law, Islamic family law in particular, so to make Pakistan be able to be a modern state in terms of marriage and divorce and the incorporation of women into the larger society. And as I said, that the Jamaat Islam and other and other Orthodox Islamist groups from the outset disagreed with this. And I think, frankly, I think they disagreed with it because it wasn't it wasn't their suggestion. You know, sometimes groups disagree, even though when you really study it, um, they could have come up with a suggestion similar to that. But you know, throughout the years, even after after the creation of the Council of Islamic Ideology in 1973, one of the first issues that they took up was the Muslim Family Laws Laws Ordinance. Was this consistent with Sharia? Was it in contradiction with Sharia? And frankly, they could never come out with a pronouncement on it until the late 1990s. And even then, they never made that public until um, until sometime in the 2000s. And it because it was such a heavily politically contested issue about women's rights. So moving onward, some of the other, you know, some of the things that people don't realize is that it was actually Pakistan that was a co-sponsor of the United Nations CEDAW Convention, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. It was Zulfikarli Bhutto's wife who introduced it on the floor of the United Nations. And, you know, so the, what I'm saying is that the Pakistan state, there are, there are streams within it that have worked for transforming laws to be more empowering towards women, to be more open and what we might call even politically progressive towards women. Meanwhile, though, after, you know, Zia Huck came to power July 5th, 1977, initially it didn't seem like this would have a huge impact on Pakistani life, society, and particularly women's rights. But then with the February 1979 Islamization program, 
it actually singled out, um, well, not on paper, but the practical implementing result was it singled out the rights of women concerning adultery and adultery without consent, Zina and Zina Biljamba. And that was the beginning, I think, of a very dark period for women's rights in Pakistan, because a woman could be charged with adultery with, um, with no proof. I mean, just making the charge. And the proof, what proof she needed was supposed to be for Salah men, meaning religious, noble, respectful men who had witnessed the act of Zina Biljabur, adultery without consent, who could say, yes, this is a, this was a rape. It was not adultery with consent. And if she didn't have that type of proof, um, she could go, a woman in Pakistan could go to jail for have after having been raped. And I think that this truly hurt Pakistan's global reputation. And it really prompted the rise of many NGOs in Pakistan to try to counter that narrative, to do something to change those laws. So I would say that during Zia's, period, Zia's time, um, there were certainly no on the one hand, there were no new laws created to empower women. On the other hand, though, conceding to global pressure in 1979, Zia also created the women's division in Pakistan, which over time morphed into the Federal Ministry for Women's Development, which, of course, no longer existed. It exists because that ministry has been devolved to the provinces. So each province has its own ministry for women's development. Of course, there still is the Federal National Commission on the Status of Women, which is supposed to make recommendations to the parliament about women's rights. But it's very different from having an actual ministry today. Anyhow, going back to Zia's time, so what I'm saying is it was a real contradiction that on the one hand, with the passage of Zia's Islamization laws, um, the promulgation, actually, because it was not done through parliamentary means. It was a military dictator seeking to find some kind of legitimacy for what he was doing. So on the one hand, you have the passage of the Islamization laws, and especially for women's rights, the passage of Zina, the Zina ordinance, which included Zina Biljabar about rape and needing to have proof that you were raped. On the other hand, you have the state also creating the um the 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 women's the women's organization that that became that became the federal ministry for women's development moving on though in the tumultuous years after benazir bhutto became prime minister in, in 1988 then nawaz sharif then benazir bhutto then nawaz sharif actually no laws whatsoever were passed to to directly affect women's rights and women's status. The only one, the only thing that actually happened was that in January 1996, Pakistan became, finally became a signatory to the UN CEDAW convention. And that was with a great deal of input of women's NGOs. Many, many principles of these women's NGOs were the ones who actually wrote um, you know, the sections of the, of the report that Benazir, um, that Benazir gave 
at the Beijing Women's Conference in September 1995, and they were a huge force in getting Pakistan to become a state's party to the CEDAW Convention in January 1996. But again, after except for joining that convention, very little happened until Pervez Musharraf came to power. And it was in the early 2000s that it was under Musharraf where there was a great deal more more attention paid to women's rights, to the Ministry for Women's Development. Um, and my sense is, and I, argue, I write about this in the book, that I, I see what Musharraf was trying to do as very similar to Ayub Khan. There's a lot of ways of being a military dictator. One is doing what, what Zia had done and, and promulgating a very... You know, I mean, something that's consistent with the ijtihad of Orthodox Islamist groups, and that is a very conservative interpretation of of women's rights. Whereas Musharraf, in many different dimensions, are on the world stage as well, and recognized, given global public opinion and rapid communication between groups globally, and Pakistan's increasing de- dependence. On development assistance, um, it became a priority for the Mashadif government to actually try to pass laws to empower women, resulting first and foremost in the 2006 um, act that put adultery, zina, back into the penal code. And um, so that now there, it was under penal code um, jurisdiction in terms of where rape fit in in Pakistan. So now a woman could not easily be tried for adultery if she was the victim of rape. And then moving on, the Pakistan People's Party government did pass a lot of legislation affecting women's rights. But each step of the way, they were countered by orthodox, some Orthodox Islamist groups especially headed by the Jamaat-e Islam, but there were other groups as well. And then there were became, you know, in the mid in the mid 2000s, there was a new chorus of more extremist interpretations, we could say, of Islam that that looked at women's rights really through a very different lens than than the lens that the Jamaat-e Islam uses. And so there was a lot of a lot of complications that were going on but but there were people within the Pakistan People's Party government, such as Sherry Rahman, who kept pushing through, passing passing various laws, such as it was no longer. I mean, there were there there were the penalties for a man to throw acid on a woman, for example, um, became became more. Uh, the penalties became harsher and stiffer. And then there was the anti-harassment laws and, and a variety of other things. But I must say that since the change of government in after the May, um, after the 2013 elections, after the April 2013 elections, there have been there has been abs- as far as I understand, absolutely no legislation whatsoever has been passed that affects women's rights. Perfect. Thank you so much for that uh, historical overview. 
so let's come to the contemporary moment. And before we get to the specific actors whom you talk about in terms of their everyday ishtihad, let's try to get a sense of the broader landscape in Pakistan today in terms of women's rights. Uh, so uh, could you give us a snapshot of contemporary mainstream views uh, in Pakistan on different facets of uh, women's rights and their normative roles in society? And you discuss some very interesting surveys, also recent surveys, uh, that reflect, uh, that uh, give us some uh, idea of this of this question. Uh, so what do those surveys reveal? And could you give us a sense of the larger landscape before we get to specific actors? Yes, of course. And in fact, uh, this was probably the hardest chapter to write, because how can you say that there are certain norms that are generally adhered to throughout Pakistan? Of course, there's some specificities that are very different. One thing I didn't write about was, for example, Hunza in Gilgit-Baltistan, where you have about a 98% female literacy rate. But that is against the norm in Pakistan. So what I, what I did was I relied on the Gallup and Galani surveys from the last decade, I also relied on um, I also relied on the the Pew Global Attitudes projects, and to some extent, I relied on um, some more recent um, research by um, in in terms of national health that was done because I was trying to also look at domestic violence and and its prevalence. And the other two surveys had not included it. One of the problems, of course, that I encountered in trying to use these surveys is that I did not write the variety of questions because this was this was not the central focus of the book, which was really to look at different groups and their attitudes. But instead, I wanted to try to capture some a main, like you said, a mainstream snapshot. So in in that chapter in the book, I first write about what we all understand as being the norm. What we understand as being the norm concerning women's rights um, and women's position in society of being protected, that there is it, their respectability is always protected, that a woman lives in her parents' house until the time of marriage and then is given away in marriage to her husband and his family. Those type, you know, that type of life in rural society. Now, how have things changed in Pakistan? And that's what I was really trying to capture through these surveys. It seems that overall, there is incredibly strong support throughout Pakistan to educate daughters. It's interesting. I found this out. I did research um, in the old city of Lahore, and that book was published in 1992 called Walls Within Walls, Life Histories of Working Women in the Old City of Lahore. And it was republished by Oxford University Press um, a decade later in 2002 with a new introduction. But what I found out in the old city of Lahore, when I asked women about survival strategies for their daughters, I mean, I start the book with a quote from a, from a woman who is a widowed seamstress. She sews punches on the bottom of shalwars for, and, you know, through a middleman. And she said, money, money and gold and land can always be taken away but nobody can take away a good education. So here is this illiterate woman telling me this. And that's exactly the message that I, that I got from looking at these various surveys, that there's overwhelmingly support in Pakistan. So for the policy implications of this is that people should not hesitate about, about putting in 
uh, schools for girls, indeed better schools for girls. Um, there's overwhelming support that when necessary, females should work. There was a, one thing that I found surprising that if, if it's a choice between a man working or a woman working, people were not looking at level of education or credentials. Instead, they were saying if it's either the man works or the woman works, the man in the family should work. So I found that quite interesting. I also looked to see about the sense of arranged marriages. And there still is a lot of support for arranged marriage, but that is changing as well. And it's changing so that both the man as well as the woman can have a say in who they marry. And we know from, you know, general ideas in Pakistani society that this is changing quite rapidly in urban areas. What I didn't expect to see was the extent to which it seems to be changing more in rural areas, certainly not at the same level, though, as in urban areas. So, um, so let's uh, shift our focus to uh, a discussion of um, uh, what you call uh, progressive NGOs in Pakistan and how they have sought to engage the tradition on the question of women's rights. Uh, so for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the landscape in Pakistan, uh, could you tell us a bit about what are some of the major uh, progressive women's NGOs that you focus on in your book? And yes, and how they sought to en- how have they sought to engage the Islamic tradition and uh, larger apparatuses of the state and uh, the political conditions on the ground uh, to push their, their agenda? Yes, certainly. And I should add that the list of progress of women's NGOs is very, very long. There are some women's NGOs that are affiliated with um, what I call in the following chapter, Orthodox Islamist Islamist groups, such as there's a women's chapter, the Jamaat Islam, there's a women's chapter of the Jamiat Ulama, but of course that's not what I'm talking about for the progressive women's NGOs. They tend to they they tend to capture themselves, I mean, see themselves, you know, the, when I said capture, meaning capture their, their narrative, is um, not affiliated with any particular religious group, any particular religious orientation. That's why I call them secular. There are, there are countless groups that have emerged since the late 1980s, when really the government of Pakistan, and frankly, I believe, under international pressure, allowed the creation of of the of NGOs that can can start freely without government approval. There's always been this periodic shift where the government wants to in Pakistan wants to control NGOs, but it was 1987-1988 where finally the you could say the doors opened and women's NGOs could operate more freely than ever before. Prior to that, there was the All-Pakistan Women's Association, APWA, which was in large part seen as a social welfare organization, but the leaders of APWA tended to go into political realms. So, for example, in the early 1980s, when the Women's Action Forum, which was a coalition of a variety of different groups, there were far fewer groups, I should mention, in 1982 than than a decade later. But the Women's Action Forum became an umbrella organization to protest against Zia's Islamization laws, and APWA did participate in that. But 
in looking at the variety and the landscape and the types of activities that progressive women's NGOs are involved in, from war, which is war against rape, to a lot of other very particular kinds of organizations, I felt that the two organizations that really um, that really encapsulate the vision, the view, and the interpretations of progressive women's NGOs are the two biggest, actually, the Audit Foundation. Audit means women. So the Audit Foundation and Shirkat Gah. Um, these are two organizations that have that are both national in scope. Shirkat Gah has offices in the major cities of Pakistan. The Audit Foundation not only has offices in the major cities of Pakistan, but in some small cities. In fact, I was so happily surprised the very first time when I went to Gilgit and I was able to meet people at the Audit Foundation's office in Gilgit, which is in the province of Gilgit, Baltistan. And they took me around to look at some of the projects that the Audit Foundation has going on there. In terms of the similarities, they, they both they both subscribe to, I would say, the global vision of women's rights, the vision that you could say is ensconced in the UN CEDAW Convention about, about struggling to eliminate discrimination against women, the idea that women have a right to work, women have a right to choose their own marriage partner, to choose to divorce their marriage partner, um, to open, to help to create new laws so that women can basically compete with men against men or even against other women in an environment free from harassment, free from, free from fear and with, you know, the global mandate that the United Nations acts behind in terms of women's rights. But very interesting. There's also a marked difference between Shirkat Gah's approach and the Audit Foundation's approach. And remember, these two organizations are so influential throughout the country that I think it's important to see how they differ in terms of their own everyday ijtihad about what Islam says about women. On the one hand, the Shirkat Gah will just says out, you know, says adamantly. We operate in a secular framework. We do not talk about religion. We don't talk about Islam or Christianity or any other religion. I mean, we, we operate within this global vision of women's rights. My understanding of that, and, and frankly, my colleagues at Shirkat Gah may well disagree with me, is that they are, they do have a sense of ijtihad. I mean, a sense of what Islam says. Their sense is that Islam supports women doing whatever they would like. I mean, in a respectable way, you know, but that there's no prohibition in Islam about, you know, a woman becoming prime minister, a woman being the, the head of the, a woman being a senator, or a woman being in parliament. Um, there's also no restriction about women traveling, women driving. Women. I mean, there are no restrictions to be placed on women. No restrictions, of course, other than anything that their own family might opt to have. They don't say families should not do this. But I mean, 
their their senses they work within a global framework and a global rubric and they say that they are not engaging with islamic groups they don't engage with mullahs or other people who are um who are talking about what islam says on the other hand the order foundation has undergone its own inner transformation while they also work within that secular global framework they have reached out to to muslim le- to when i say muslim leaders i mean muslim religious leaders they've engaged the council of islamic ideology they have engaged other other religious leaders to try to have a forum so that they can maybe really to underscore what their views are about women's rights in islam so in other words while they don't differ with what those rights should be regarding shirk atgah their approach towards it is different because they do engage with religious leaders and they to underscore explicitly that islam indeed allows for these rights i hope that's clear Absolutely. Absolutely. So let us now move to the other major, uh, I guess, set of factors that you talk about in the book, uh, which is what you call orthodox Islamist uh, groups in Pakistan. And here, with your permission, Anita, if I could merge two questions that I have about this discussion. Uh, one is, uh, how do you go about complicating uh, some of the stereotypical depictions of uh, Islamist groups that one might have in terms of uh, the question of gender? and then more specifically if you could talk a little about uh, this group al huda that you talk about extensively uh, in your book what is al huda if you could uh, give us a brief uh, uh, synopsis of uh, what this organization is and what has been its impact on the pakistani landscape uh, when it comes to questions of women rights and issues of gender again my concern is that our interview did not go way over your time so i will try to be brief first of all there were there are many many groups that like with like with the women's groups there's many groups we could call orthodox islamist groups but what i opted to focus on i said there it seems that there's three different types of groups that kind of epitomize the different discourses within orthodox islamist groups and that is i looked at the national actions activities statements policies of the national jamaat-e islam The second is I looked at what were the laws, policies and programs of the Muttahida Majlis-e-Amal, the MMA coalition of six Islamist groups that came to power as a result of the October 2002 elections in in what was then Northwest Frontier Province which is now Khyber Pakhtunkhwa because these were very much more localized actions I mean here we have the national jamaat the first part of this chapter but but in this second part of the chapter I really focused heavily on the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa jamaat the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa jamiat-e-ulama and w- how coming this these six groups coming together what their agenda was and the final group that I focused on is Al-Huda Al-Huda which builds itself as a women's educational organization but it actually really came about um it, its origins really uh, Farid Hashmi was teaching at the International Islamic University in Islamabad um with funding from Saudi Arabia she created Al-Huda and Al-Huda has had 
a huge impact on everyday life in Pakistan that I'll get to in a minute. So in, indeed, these issues become complicated because, again, going back to this everyday ijtihad, it's very interesting how each of these three groups have somewhat different approach towards what Islam says about women's rights. For example, um, the national, um, I mean, the Jamaati Islam will say that a woman, a woman can have any occupation she wants. She can, um, she can run a business. She can, um, she can be in politics provided on the one hand that personally she always carries herself respectfully. In other words, it's a way of implying that she should wear some type of hijab, some type of a veil. The second thing that they say is that she should only do this work, these obligations, once she has fulfilled her obligations to her family. So if those are not yet fulfilled, then she should not be working outside the home. She should not be engaged in politics. But the Institute for Policy Studies in Islamabad was incredibly helpful to me to try to understand the myriad aspects of the national Jamaati Islam's view on this. They are essentially the Jamaat's think tank in Islamabad, and they had come out with a series of documents and reports really trying to, to capture the vision that the Jamaat has. Um, another place that was very helpful was the International Islamic University, specifically the women's dawah section and the leader of the women's dawah section, who was very helpful in terms of clarifying this ijtihad that the Jamaat has about women's rights. Interestingly, it's not that different from the secular women's NGOs in that it does not prohibit women's involvement and activities. The, the big differences are that it prohibits some, a couple of them that I won't go into detail on, but basically a woman needs, a woman should be respectfully covered wearing a hijab, but very importantly, she has to ensure that, that her obligations to her family have been met. When I was looking at the MMA more, more localized view in Khyber Pochtenpois, it's very interesting how lines become crossed between what is accept, accepted in a local cultural context and how people confuse that with what Islam is saying. And that's in many ways what 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 was revealed in in the MMA's various doctrines in Cyberpartenhua. I mean, they focused in large part on women, but they also focused on um, the need to set up break times on Fridays at work so that men so that everybody could pray. But it was a real marked separation of the sexes in Khyber Pochtenhua, which is common culturally in that area. So regardless of whether this was coming from the Jamaat or the Jamiat or any of the smaller branches, um, the other four smaller groups that were part of the MMA, it was a, it was a real focus on the separation of women's lives from men's lives, putting in new colleges and universities so that girls could get an education but study separate. 
And then they, they, they went into a, a number of tangents. Like once a, once a woman becomes educated as a doctor, can she treat male patients? This is, this is an arena that the national Jamaat has not, has not explored because there's a shortage of doctors in Pakistan to begin with, I think. But going to the, to focus on Al-Huda. And I said that Al-Huda has had a huge impact, especially on middle class life in Pakistan. I mean, back in the day, you know, two generations ago, whether you were in a rural area or an urban area, if, if a woman was discontent with her life, she could always go to a local peer. She could go to a local, you know, she, I mean, I, I have spent many a Thursday night at, in, at different shrines in Lahore, um, Bibian Pakdaman in particular, but also at some of the other shrines where women had gotten permission from their families to go to these places and they would get psychological support either from a peer or from these other groups of women. But over time, this, while it still exists, it's changed quite a bit. Um, they're not as common for women to go to, I think. But also more educated women, middle-class women who've received some education had been looking, I think, for something else. And that is a gap that Al-Huda was seeking to fill. Ostensibly, it runs classes about Islam for women. And once you take the classes, then you're encouraged to go back home and hold smaller classes in your own home, wherever in the country you live. So this is an organization that has really grown and burgeoned throughout the country. They, they in, in, noticeably, women who are graduates of Al-Huda wear the kind of of a veil covering their hair that has become more of the norm in Malaysia and had previously not been a norm in Pakistan. I don't think that most women, when they get involved with Al-Huda, really understand that what they are learning about in terms of Islam. I mean, Al-Huda will say that we are, we're just teaching people tafsir. We're just teaching about Islam and the Quran so that women can become educated more about what religion says. What women who start these classes don't understand is that they're actually teaching a certain ijtihad, a certain interpretation of what Islam says about, um, about Islam and women's rights and women's activities in the contemporary period. And it's very markedly different from what the progressive secular women's NGOs teach about. I mean, the focus in Al-Huda's teaching is about your personal righteousness. Um, the focus is on making your, trying to make your husband be more religious as well. Um, the idea is if you're going to work at all, then you should really have, um, you know, teach about Islam teach about the Quran in your home to other women, um, much less openness about mixing with men publicly. I mean, the Jamaat has less mixing of, you know, with men and women publicly than, of course, the progressive women's NGOs have. They have no restriction. The Jamaat has, the restriction is women should dress properly with, you know, with propriety when they do that. Al-Huda basically 
there's no reason for men and women to mix. And if they have to, then you should always fail. So what I'm saying is they, they're teaching a much more subservient view of women and their rights in society than even the national Jamaati Islam view. And what I find a, a bit pernicious about this, frankly, is that they do it under the guise of teaching women about Islam without clarifying that this is one interpretation of what Islam says. And it's not necessarily even the mainstream one because there's much more of a sense of Hanbali Islam than the local Hanafi Islam. I hope that's that helps clarify it. Absolutely, absolutely. So as a final substantive question about uh, the book, uh, Anita, oh, what was the Tariq Taliban in Swat that it, the final chapter of your uh, book focuses on? And what were its major features of the paradigm of Ishtihad that it presented on questions of gender and women? Well, this, this chapter was challenging to write in that, as far as I know, I never actually interviewed members of the Taliban. But I did interview women who in SWAT who are probably family members. I know for sure that there were a few women that other women said to me, oh, their husbands or their sons are Taliban. And in fact, the reality of what happened in SWAT in 2008 and 2009 and actually continues in SWAT to today is that the Tariqe Taliban Pakistan in their SWAT chapter um, really permeated society. I mean, once, and, and Mullah Fazula headed it, he had originally been a cable operator. I don't mean cable television. These are the cables that you, that you run a little chair so that people can sit on and cross the river. So that's what uh, Fazula had been. And he founded the SWAT branch. Um, I mean, after the Tariq Taliban Pakistan was formed, I believe it was December 2007 in Quetta, he then went back to SWAT and in early 2008, we don't know the exact date, he founded this, like the SWAT chapter of this. And it was actually a much more ruthless interpretation of women's rights or really lack of rights. Um, the Ijtihad that, I mean, he would come out with these statements. Um, where did he come out with the statements? He can, became known by some people as um, Mullah Radio. They would have FM radio broadcasts that they would just quickly set up, have the broadcast, and then move it on before before the army could come in and shut them down. And he would, um, it was, it's very interesting. I spoke to many women about how they understood what they were learning about Islam through these radio broadcasts. I mean, he would come on and, I mean, the broadcast would say that it's there to teach you about Islam. And so to many women who I interviewed, this was really an act of modernity. They would have a mobile phone. They would pick up their mobile phone. These were uneducated women, and they would learn about Islam. They felt that they were improving their lives. They were becoming educated. But what was this Islam, this Islam that they were learning about? I mean, what was his ijtihad? It was an Islam that, you know, women, women need to listen to men. If a woman has a problem, men will solve that problem. There was no 
reason for women to have to work, but under those circumstances when they had to, they had to be fully veiled. And a real contradiction was that the SWAT Taliban, remember Fazlullah, um, while he was originally from SWAT, um, the, his predecessor had been from Div, which is a bit different culturally. In SWAT, women tend to wear the chadar, you know, six yards of cloth that they put over their heads and, and just kind of encapsulate themselves in this, in this big shawl. But the, when the SWAT, when the Taliban came in, they wanted women to wear the shuttlecock burqa. So there was a lot of animosity, even among, even amongst women about this. Um, women, women school teachers who were going to a girls school related to me that while they were traveling, uh, a member of the Taliban stopped the rickshaw driver and said, how dare you transport these women who are not wearing burqas and threatened the rickshaw driver that if they ever saw him transporting women again, not wearing burqas, they would cut off his head. So I'm sure that that rickshaw driver never picked up women in chadras again. So it was this, this movement back to or back or, you know, I mean, the, the real mixture of what was one version of local cultural orientation towards women, very intermixed with interpretations of Islam, that women should be hidden from society, women need to be taken care of by men, women should not seek to take care of themselves. But if they did need to venture out, it was to be fully covered with this shuttlecock burqa which interestingly was not a part of local cultural norms. Some of the other things that the SWAT, that, that Fazlula taught, for example, some women related to me, that occasionally um, on their FM radio broadcasts, um, he would say, and now I want to talk to the women. So the men would actually leave the room so they would not hear this message. And again, it was kind of building on some of those messages of al-Huda, but I must clarify, you know, in a much more extremist way. And that was that it was the women's obligation to ensure that their husbands prayed, that their husbands were pious. But they, you know, what their idea of piety was, is part of what fuels extremist groups today. You know, their idea of piety was if others don't don't agree with us, we're going to cut off their heads. We're going to, you know, kill them. Um, but one of the one of the attractions of the SWAT Taliban that after they actually came into the area and the violence started to occur, um, people who were, you know, regular providers of jobs, if they were from down country outside of SWAT, they left. The, um, the Taliban forced a lot of farms, people who grew, had orchards and all, to stop farming. Um, they threatened to burn down their fields, to burn down their trees, but they wanted to stop economic growth and prosperity in the area, you know, kind of bring the area to its feet in homage to them. I must say it seems very similar to what Daesh is trying to do in, you know, Syria and, and that area today. But um, so what they were as part of this, they were really the only providers of jobs. I mean, there were there were certain salaries that were paid if you were a watchman, a security guard, if you were a gunman and also very clearly outlined that if you 
participated in a suicide bombing after the act, this is the amount of money your family would receive. So given the unrelenting poverty that especially escalated in SWAT after the onslaught of the Taliban, I mean, it's not surprising that people joined them because they needed to survive and have their families survive. But their itch to hot about women was that um, when there's no independence whatsoever on the part of women. And we see this even manifest today. I mean, it was, remember, the SWAT Taliban who shot Malala Yousafzai in the head. Um, I came to know Malala and especially her father, Ziauddin Yousafzai, was very helpful to me in this research. He introduced me to a variety of teachers in Saidi Sharif, the the uh, um, district capital of SWAT. And, um, you know, these were all people who opposed the Taliban. But when after when the Taliban shot Malala, they came out with a fatwa. And the fatwa was that anybody who opposed the Taliban opposed Islam. I mean, you know, this was such an extremist, violent group. And to say that if they if anybody opposed them, they were not Muslims was huge. And again, also, they shut down a lot of schools. They burnt down a lot of schools. Uh, young young women in their teens and early 20s told me how much they missed going to school. It was not just Malala. She became a spokesperson for that sentiment. But it was the idea of just, you know, keeping after, after grade four, uh, the Taliban's view was their own everyday ijtihad became girls should not be educated further. They should just be caring for the men of their families. So as we're approaching the end of our time, uh, Anita, uh, could you share with us what are you working on these days and uh, what are some of the things that you could expect to read from you and learn from you uh, in the coming few uh, months and years? Well, my new book project, I spent this past summer, three months in Pakistan researching it, um, doing preliminary research because I need to go, I really want to go back to Pakistan and actually go to different sites throughout the country. Um, my new book project is called Countering Violent Extremism in Pakistan, Local Actions, Local Voices. And again, as the book that you were just talking to me about, Interpreting Islam, Modernity, and Women's Rights in Pakistan, that I wrote that the, this, this book we've talked about today really as a result of the frustration of hearing so many people saying, this is what has to be done, this is what can't be done, and all. Well, my new project also comes out of some frustration, and that is I feel like if, you know, there's terrorist attacks and then, you know, Nawaz Sharif or other government figures or military figures and international donors and people from the U.S. Embassy and other governments, they all come on and say to, to TV and say, we're sorry that this happened. And that's not enough to say we're sorry. I mean, you have to understand what are the factors that are fueling this this emergence of violent extremism in Pakistan. I think in part, it's my love of SWAT, my deep, close identification on a very personal level with, with SWAT that I have. I was very close with the late Miangul Aurangzeb, who passed away in August of 2014, and with his wonderful family. Um, I mean, SWAT is a very special place, and we don't have time for me to explain all that. 
but it has something to do, you know, the former Welly of Squad put up educational institutions. He encouraged female education. He even paid for girls to study outside of SWAT if they did well on their exams. He paid for people to study abroad. I mean, there was this whole mentality in SWAT that was very different and much more peaceful than in other parts of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. So now we see the emergence of the SWAT Taliban, this very violent extremist organization there. We see violent extremism manifest throughout the country, really ripping the country, this wonderful country apart, a country that I deeply identify with. And so it gets very frustrating when I hear international reports that Pakistan is not doing enough to counter violent extremism. And when I heard that, for example, it was the, U, uh, the U.S. government and other entities supported the Borka Avenger cartoon series as a way of countering violent extremism in Pakistan, that I felt like this. This is too much. I know that there's local groups in Pakistan who are doing some really exciting things in their actions, in their voices to counter violent extremism. I'm very impressed by the Bachachan school system, for example, that exists in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, that are not only teaching, you know, um, a regular mainstream Western curriculum of math and computer science and English and the like, but they're also teaching um, Pakhtun poetry, Pakhtun literature, Pakhtun um, music to value their own indigenous culture. I'm very impressed. I mean, I've, I've, this summer, I was able to create a typology of the types of local actions happening to counter violent extremism. Another example is the, is the students in Karachi who became frustrated by the hate language that they saw on the walls of their school and they painted over it. And this has burgeoned into a huge movement in Karachi that is, that was painting over hate language on on um, on on the walls by roadways on other public walls throughout the city, and finally the KDA, the Karachi Development Authority, has said that if anybody paints graffiti and over the artwork that is being that is happening in Karachi, that the KDA will will now get you know delete that graffiti. So it's, it's like local groups pushing the state to actually act. So I'm really excited about this research because it will really, um, from what I've already learned from people in Pakistan, it's really going, my goal is to underscore the dedication, the caring, the commitment of local people in Pakistan to create the society in which they want to live and not be... And, and not be, have that society hijacked by these violent extremists. Interpreting Islam, Modernity and Women's Rights in Pakistan, published by Felgrave Macmillan Press in 2014. Uh, thank you so much, Anita, for your time, for this wonderful book and for this extensive conversation about this book. Uh, really appreciate uh, your time and I'm sure our listeners would have really benefited uh, from your erudite and articulate uh, responses. So thank you very much. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Professor Anita Weiss on her important new book, Interpreting Islam, Modernity and Women's Rights in Pakistan. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. 
Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tari, signing off. Be well, take care, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.